The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit shadygrovepca.org. All right. We're going to uh, be jumping into Romans chapter 15 together. And so if you have your Bibles or your apps, you can take that out um, to follow along. And uh, we're going to be concluding concluding this kind of three-week mini-series on Christian liberty, which Charlie began two weeks ago. He worked us through uh, chapter 14 of the book of Romans. And um, while some of what we're going to be covering this morning is a review, um, I think there's going to be room in the text uh, to maybe spend some more time talking through some application uh, this morning as we look at how Paul sort of concludes this argument on Christian liberty. So um, now this topic of Christian liberty is a challenging one to, to preach on, and it's challenging for at least a few reasons, although there's probably several more. Uh, first, it can be difficult to talk about uh, what exactly are matters of Christian liberty today, right? What exactly counts as Christian liberty? Is this a liberty issue that we're talking about, or is it a moral issue, a right or wrong issue, or an essential matter of doctrine of faith issue, right? And in trying to talk about this as a pastor, the added difficulty is that in trying to explain some of these principles, or even to try and give an example, you might inadvertently trample on somebody's Christian liberty and do exactly the opposite of what you're trying to encourage in the text, right? And so it can be really difficult and uh, to, to, to work through this together. And I just want to reassure everyone here, everyone listening at home, that it is not my intention to trample on anyone's liberty or freedom this morning. And if you feel that I've done so in any way, please just come talk to me about it and we can try and work through that. Uh, but know that that's not my intention um, this morning. And really, the, the greatest difficulty of all when we're thinking through through this issue of Christian liberty, uh, and this really gets to the heart of the matter, it's this. It's that even if we agree on what qualifies as a Christian liberty issue, it's frankly really difficult to treat one another the way that the Apostle Paul is exhorting us to in this chapter, right? Um, particularly in this day and age. You know, the highest virtues of our culture look a lot more like that first chunk of Colossians 3, And then the second chunk of Colossians 3. The highest virtues of our culture today tend to be anger and suspicion. And in all of our hearts, to one degree or another, we have become sick by the poisonous attitudes that our culture has fed us. And so rather than um, welcoming one another, receiving one another, pleasing one another, walking in love with one another, living in harmony with one another, we are instead inclined to view one another with suspicion, to constantly criticize and to get red-faced angry all too quickly. And so I think these topics this morning are really relevant and important for all of us. Uh, And so we're going to be wrapping this up this morning. And uh, let's turn to Romans chapter 15 together. We're reading verses 1 through 7. Let's give careful attention to the reading of God's word. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. 
May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we just ask during this time that you would speak to us through your word, that you would help us to sit humbly uh, under your word and not over it, thinking that we can judge it for ourselves. And uh, for those who are pricked in heart and conscience this morning, I pray that you would uh, bring them encouragement in the gospel, uh, that you would encourage all of us uh, to become more like Christ, uh, who did not please himself, but came and gave his life to please us. And so, Father, we just ask that you would speak to us now during this time, and we pray this in his name and for his sake. Amen. So we're going to do something a little bit unique this morning. We're actually going to start at the end of the passage in verse 7, and then we're going to loop back around and end in verse 6. Okay, so we're going to start in verse 7, loop back around, and end in verse 6. And the reason why I want to do that is because verse 7 is very much an echo of Paul's opening instruction in chapter 14, verse 1. And so by starting in verse 7, we'll kind of have the ability to do a little bit of review, get on the same page, and then kind of work through 1 through 6 and apply that um, together. And so four really commands, four commands that this text, I think, is impressing upon us this morning. Uh, first, to welcome one another. Second, to please one another. Third, to consider Christ together. And fourth, to glorify God together. Okay, so welcome one another, uh, please one another, consider Christ together, and glorify God together. And that's going to be our outline for this morning. So first, welcome one another. And in these first two points, in these first two commands, we're going to be really talking about the what, uh, the what kind of life and behavior we're being called to. Uh, And I'll have a word of caution for us in each of these um, two points as we're working through these verses together. So in verse 7, Paul, like I said, is very much echoing uh, how he began this section on Christian liberty, uh, telling us to welcome one another. But there is one significant difference here in verse 7 from chapter 14, verse 1, and that is that in chapter Chapter 14, verse 1, the exhortation was primarily toward the strong believers to welcome the weak. And yet here at the end of this passage, he's telling every believer to welcome every other believer. And so in the end, the exhortations that Paul has for us in this section really go both ways. The strong ought to decide not to put a stumbling block in front of those who are weak. They ought to live in such a way that is pleasing to those who are weak. But the weak, likewise, ought not to try to lord over the conscience of the strong, or perhaps in their lack of confidence of faith to lash out or make harsh judgments against the strong. I'll just, I'm going to back up and we're just going to keep going. All right. We are jumping back into the text. The Lord has brought us reprieve, and now we must get back to it. So I'm going to back up just a a couple paragraphs, um, try and recap where we were uh, for those who maybe missed out a little bit online. So we were talking about how what we saw in the uh, Corinthian church and the Roman church is you had two different groups of people who, depending on their context, struggled differently in some similar ways, but also differently to relate to their surrounding culture. And so what we were saying is we can learn at least two things from that real quick. And the first was that, um, um, the first was that cultural and ethnic differences are real, right? 
and they have a huge impact on how we view the world or even uh, can approach scripture at times. And so um, as different and cultural ethnic groups come together into the church, uh, we need to have patience with one another as we work out our different cultural issues, trying to live in harmony together with one another. And there's often a lot of issues that can come up. And uh, what we were saying is that Christians, more than anyone else, we have reason, right? We have gospel reason to be up to this task of figuring things out as we come together across our differences. So that was first that we learned real quick. Second that we learned uh, is that uh, different cultural and ethnic groups likely have different blind spots to the implications of the gospel. And so uh, each group, again, what you had, depending on their context, saw things a little bit differently, and they were either wiser about the gospel or blinder to the gospel and its implications. So Tim Keller, pastor from New York, he summarizes it this way. He says, in other words, it was their cultural experience, their cultural background that in some cases made them blind to the gospel implications. In some cases, it makes them particularly farsighted and clear-eyed about the implications of the gospel. Do you know what this means? This means that everyone is standing in some culture no matter how hard you try. You're standing in a culture and your positions are limited and you can only see part of the implications of the gospel. And so in this beauty of the church that's bringing together every tribe, tongue, and nation into one new group, uh, God is calling us all together. And as we come together, we reflect different parts of the glory of the image of God, and we understand and emphasize and see different aspects of implications of the gospel and how that is to be worked out in our lives. And so the beautiful thing about the church is that when we come together, that our differences actually can help us, not hinder us but it has to be something that we're willing um, to talk about. So what is required then for us to truly welcome one another as we are exhorted to in this text? Simply put, a posture of humility, a willingness to see the world or perhaps even um, an approach to gospel implications from someone else's perspective. A humility recognizing that we don't have the full picture and that our knowledge is limited. Before we move on, though, uh, from this point, I do want to give us a quick word of caution about uh, applying what Paul has been saying here in the relationship between the strong and the weak. And the caution is this. um, Let's be slow and cautious to uh, over-apply these categories of strong and weak. Okay? Let's be cautious not to apply them into into categories or to situations where they don't really apply. And I think there's a danger in over-applying what Paul has been saying here to the degree that we start to see all disagreements between Christians as sort of uh, strong, weak issues. And we kind of have this like, uh, maybe this modern tolerance perspective of, oh, we can all just be right. Or, oh, let's just agree to disagree. But that's not what Paul is calling us to in this text. So the question then is what kinds of issues do qualify as a strong or weak difference? And I think maybe it's easier to sort of specify what does not qualify as a strong, weak difference, and that'll help us see what maybe does fall into this uh, category. So first, we know that it doesn't apply to the essentials of the faith, right? Where the gospel and apostolic faith is at stake. When these essentials of the faith are at risk, Paul's response was very, very different. And so, for example, in the letter of Galatians, you remember in chapter one, he says in his introduction, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you and are turning to a different gospel. So we're not talking about essential gospel issues. We aren't talking about those who try to obey the law as some kind of works righteousness, because we know, again, Paul dealt with those issues very, very differently. 
And he dealt with them very, very differently even earlier on in Romans, right? In chapters 2, 3, 4, and 5. Nor are we talking about differences in how we handle and view the moral law and the Ten Commandments. Just look at the teaching ministry of Jesus. You remember in his encounter with the rich young ruler, this man asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds with listing several of the Ten Commandments. And when the rich young ruler says that he's kept them all, Jesus presses the moral law further and he says, okay, well then go and sell all your possessions and give give them to the poor. Or consider again when he encounters the Pharisees in Matthew 9 and he quotes the prophet Hosea, Hosea and he said, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So the moral law is not up for debate. Issues related to the moral law, such as abortion, all manners of abuse, racism, or any other form of injustice are not strong, weak issues. We might disagree with one another on the prevalence of injustice or even how to respond to injustice, but injustice is not a difference of being strong or weak. So, It would be wrong, I think, for us to label gospel issues or moral issues as a strong, weak disagreement. What then falls under this idea of being strong or weak? Well, primarily, I think we're talking about non-gospel, non-moral cultural issues. These are issues which could vary from culture to culture. This is why missionaries must work very, very hard to understand the culture that they're going uh, going to serve in. And so current examples in our context here might be uh, matters of music, dress, books, tattoos, food, dancing, alcohol, and so on, okay? And uh, one, I I have a story. uh, Some of you have heard the story even recently. I think I told it in one of our online groups. But uh, just a great story, I think, of what Paul is getting at here. And it's one of my favorite stories to tell, so I'm going to tell it. Um, But it was when I was in college, and uh, I was out to dinner one night with a couple of my buddies, and one of them was my friend Mike. And what you need to know about Mike, before I tell you this story, is that Mike is not the guy who I would have thought was very suave when it came to, 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 to talking to women. Uh, he was not uh, the guy who I would think uh, sort of had it all together. He uh, was really into Japanese manga, uh, was very small, um, didn't really play any sports, just wasn't the guy that I would think was going to be like great at talking to women, right? And so we're out at dinner and uh, I saw our waitress and I happened to think our waitress was cute. And so I told the guys I'm out to dinner with, you know, I thought she was cute. And so Mike says to me, well, why don't you try and get her phone number? And I said, I don't think so. You know, she's working. I'm one of her clients. I don't think that'd be, I, I just don't think that's, I don't want to do that, right? And so then Mike, he looks at me and he says, Ben, listen, I'm really good at talking to women. Okay. When I was in high school, everybody would ask me to talk to the girls for them. Even the football players would come to me and ask me to talk to the girls for them. I was like thinking, okay, well, I'm about to find something out about Mike that I didn't know, right, prior to this moment. So I was like, all right, we'll go for it. Okay. Now, this was also the week, uh, this was, I don't know, probably right, 2007, 2008. So one of the Harry Potter movies was coming out, uh, probably number five or something that, right, was coming out that weekend. So a waitress comes back to the table. And Mike decides, he decides to lead with this, okay? He says, so, you going to see the new Harry Potter movie this weekend? And I kid you not, the waitress, she goes dead in the face and she looks at Mike and she says, my father took all of my Harry Potter books and burned them. And that was it. Um, needless to say, I did not get her phone number that night, but things worked out for me, uh, as you all know, and I'm proudly now celebrating Father's Day uh, as a proud father. So 
Just a great example of how sometimes we can handle, right, different cultural issues in different ways. And Paul is exhorting us to welcome and receive one another, even amidst our cultural differences. So that was the first point. Uh, I'll try and go a little bit faster here. I know we got delayed there. So welcome one another. Second, please one another. Uh, Look now at verses one and two. I actually don't quite like or agree with the translation here in the ESV uh, where it says failings of the weak. Uh, I think that that kind of language is going to make us more prone to seeing this as moral failures of some sort. But what the Greek here literally says, what Paul says is we who are able have an obligation to bear with the weaknesses of those who are not able. Okay, that's what it literally says. And so I think the NASB has a better grasp on this. It translates this verse as saying, we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength. We who are strong have an obligation to bear the weaknesses of those without strength. The verb bear with here is uh, what Paul says in Galatians 6 when he's urging us to bear one another's burdens. And so when we're uh, being exhorted to here is not just to tolerate, okay, as we were saying before, it's not just to tolerate those whom we have differences with, but to willingly and lovingly assume for ourselves the burdens and postures of those who are weak. And to what end? Well, he says in verse two, not to please ourselves, but to please our neighbor for his good and to build him up. I love this verse. Verse two. I love this verse. We could do a whole sermon series on verse two, but we only have time for a few brief comments. So what Paul says here is that each of us ought to please his neighbor. And the neighbor in this context is the weak fellow believer. And by using this word neighbor, it's clear that Paul is anchoring his instruction here in the great love command, the second greatest commandment, to love our neighbor as ourselves. This word neighbor, it appears 16 times in the New Testament, and in all but three of those times, it is in a direct quotation or allusion to the love command, which originally was given in Leviticus 19.18. And so the strong are to walk in love are to please their neighbor, like what he said in chapter 14, verse 15. And I think this helps us understand then what Paul is getting at when he says to please his neighbor for his good. Now keep in mind, Paul is not telling us to please people rather than God, right? He did not say please people rather than God. He's telling us to please others rather than ourselves. And what does that look like? Well, it means being winsome and accommodating toward others. It means uh, perhaps even flattering others as we seek to win them over with gentleness and respect. And so far from having this attitude of being proud, arrogant, flaunting ourselves and our strengths or our freedoms, Paul is instead encouraging us to a posture of humility, seeking to please, affirm, encourage, love, and be winsome toward those with whom we disagree. And this takes me to my second word of caution in applying this text. Uh, My first caution was not to over-apply this text. Well, my second caution is not to under-apply it. How can both be the case? Well, just as we might want to over-apply these categories of strong or weak and thus dismiss or even downplay significant disagreements in the body of Christ that really need to be worked through, we may also want to quickly pass over Paul's instruction here thinking it doesn't apply to other areas of our life. But this instruction, friends, of being humble, of being winsome, encouraging, affirming, gentle, walking in love, this isn't unique to just strong, weak disagreements, is it? No. 
Right? The Bible is filled with similar instruction that describe not just how we are to act in our various disagreements, but really how the whole Christian life ought to be formed and shaped. Here's a short list. We're told in Philippians 2 to have the mind of Christ and to consider the interests of others ahead of our own. In Mark chapter 10 and Luke 22, we're told to serve others as Christ has served us. In 1 Thessalonians 5 and Hebrews 3, to encourage one another daily. In 1 Corinthians 13, our love is to hope, bear, believe, and endure all things. In Colossians 4, 6, it's to have speech that's gracious and seasoned with salt. In Colossians 3, we saw that we are to be compassionate, humble, kind, meek, patient, and forgiving. And in John 13, we are to love others as Christ has loved us. And again, that's the short list. So if we want to talk about being countercultural as Christians, let's start with that. Let's start with that short list. Let's start with the unique and godly character formation that is the work of the Holy Spirit conforming us more and more into the image of Christ. And this is exactly the opposite of how our culture is conforming us, which instead is teaching us how to be suspicious, angry, divisive, quick to respond, quick to critique, bitter, cynical, and critical. And these sins, these subtle and sneaky sins have invaded the heart. I'm afraid of so many Christians have invaded my own heart, have invaded much of Christianity, and we're so quick to defend these little sneaky sins under the disguise of discernment or defending the truth. But friends, if this second list describes us more than the first, then we're not being discerning, we're just being mean. We're not loving and pleasing our neighbor. We're just being harsh and critical. And so what I think all of us need to do together this morning, what this text is calling us to do, is to consider Christ together. This is exactly where Paul goes in verses 3 and 4. Because the only way we are going to have the, the power, the endurance, the encouragement to love and please our neighbor is through the power of the resurrected and ascended Christ. And I think what many of us, perhaps all of us need here and those who are watching at home, what we need this morning is a reset. Our hearts need a reset that would help us to rid ourselves of how our character has been shaped more by what we've been being fed from the culture and not by what we've been, been being fed by scripture. And if you're here today and you, like me, saw too much of yourselves in that being shaped by the sins of the culture rather than the character of Christ, then the good news is that there is good news for us this morning. Because the gospel message does not say to us that we are saved and that we are forgiven by how well we love our neighbor. And praise God for that. If the gospel message said that you will be forgiven and you will be saved if you love your neighbor well enough, then we're all going to hell. But the gospel message comes to each and every one of us this morning and says, you are saved and you are forgiven because Christ has come and made you his neighbor. He came and took on flesh. He came and dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. He lived among us. Even while we were his enemy, Romans 5 says, he came and he made us his neighbor. And so the gospel tells us that if we turn from our sin and put our faith in Christ, we can rest confident in his love, mercy, and forgiveness, and we can know his compassion, his kindness, his humility, and his graciousness. 
And knowing that, experiencing that for ourselves, we can then go and do likewise. And so what I'm calling you to, what God is calling to you to, each and every one of us this morning, is to believe the gospel. Whether that is for the first time or the thousandth time, to believe the gospel of God's grace. And you see exactly how Paul does this in verse 3, don't you? He reminds us that Christ did not please himself, but he what? By implication, he pleased us. And he quotes from Psalm 69, which we read this morning, which said, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. This is a psalm which is frequently attributed to Christ, such as in John 2, when he um, overthrows the tables and casts people out of the temple. And it says his disciples remembered, zeal for your house will consume me also from Psalm 69. And so Paul is appealing, using Psalm 69, he's appealing to Jesus as our standard and our model for what pleasing our neighbor looks like. And what is that standard? Being willing to endure the shame, the mocking, the insults, the taunts, the reproach which he endured in his death. Why? To give us eternal life. John Chrysostom, early church father, he said it this way. He said, Christ had power not to have been reproached, power not to have suffered what he did suffer had he been minded to only look to himself. But praise God that he did not only look to himself, but he looked to our needs and our interests. And so Christ is our gospel motivation for pleasing our neighbor, which is what every Christian ought to strive toward. So that is the length to which Jesus went to bear with us and to please us. And so what Paul then is saying to us in this text is if that is the length to which Jesus went to please you as, as his neighbor, then can you, not, can you not set aside a little meat and drink for an evening? Can you not humbly observe a religious day with your neighbor in order to please your neighbor? Can you set aside your disagreement for now and choose not to get angry? Can you not lump your brother and sister into a category or label and instead look for ways to encourage or affirm them? Can you be humble about the extent of your knowledge rather than forming divisive opinions uh, about an issue that you just read a blog post about? Can you be patient with your leaders at work, in the church, and in, in the government? as they try to work through difficult and sensitive issues? Can you take the time to consider another point of view and maybe a, a video or a book that's recommended to you before you pass judgment on it? You can, and I can, but only if we keep our eyes on Christ and believe the message of his gospel. And so to what end then does Paul have in mind as we, uh, with everything that he's been saying here and leading up to this point? Look at verse 5 and 6 with me, and I'll try to be quick. Paul, in verses 5 and 6, he gives this prayerful wish, and he's sharing the contents of his prayers with the Roman church, and we get to read it now. He's sharing the contents of his prayers as an indirect means of exhortation and command. And so in this prayer, he's returning to the big idea, which has really been the central theme of this whole passage, which is to restore the sense of unity and fellowship that was breaking down in the Roman church. Let me ask you, wouldn't that be nice? We've been apart from each other for so long. There's been some major cultural upheavals 
in the last three months happening all around us, all the way from our city streets to the Supreme Court? Wouldn't it be nice to live in such harmony with one another? In verse 5, he prays that God would grant us the endurance and encouragement to live in such harmony with one another. And what he quite literally says here is that we uh, would think the same thing. He wants us to think the same thing. This is not unlike his instruction in Philippians 2, where he told the Philippians church to have the same mind in Christ Jesus. Now, um, Christians will often use texts like this, or maybe what we read in Colossians 3, or what we see in Galatians chapter 3, uh, where it talks about how there's no longer Jew or Greek or slave or free or male and female, but all are made one in Christ. And Christians can tend to take texts like these to say, see, we shouldn't talk about our differences. We ought to minimize our differences because the gospel rids us of our differences. We don't have to talk about it anymore. But that's not what Paul is saying here. Right? Notice here in verses uh, in Romans 14 and 15, Paul' instruction has been, uh, his instructions have been to respect one another's views and to accommodate one another, not to have the same opinion. And in several other passages in the New Testament, we see deferring commands for men and women, for older men instead of younger men, or for older women instead of younger women, for slaves and masters and so on. So these passages are not telling us to minimize our differences or to think exactly the same way as one another. Instead, what Paul is asking from God and what he's calling us to is a common perspective and a sense of unity and purpose that transcends our differences. And how can we find that common perspective and purpose? Well, one general application from this text and then one specific application, and then we'll close. Generally, what this passage, what we're being called to, is a unity in seeking the glory of God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And the way that Paul prescribes we do that is to glorify God together with one voice. And of course, what is he talking about here, right? He's talking about the corporate life and worship of the church. And so do you want to know how you find a sense of unity and purpose and shared life with other people, uh, with other Christians, despite the differences that we may have? Here's how. You commit yourself to the life and worship of a local church. That's it. Commit yourself to the life and worship of a local church. It's real simple, but incredibly profound. Uh, David Martin Lloyd-Jones, 20th century preacher and theologian, he, sa- he once said this. He said that we need to reclaim the idea that church membership is the greatest privilege that could come our way in this world. We need to reclaim the idea that church membership is the greatest uh, privilege that could ever come our way in this world. So let me ask you this morning, do you see your membership in the church as the greatest privilege you could receive in this life? Do you view the corporate life and worship of the church as of utmost importance? J.I. Packer said it this way, this quote, I'm reading it just an excerpt, the full quotes in your bulletin. He said this, he said, choose to commit yourself to a congregation long-term to identify as fully as you can with its goals and members, to open your life and your home to your fellow believers and to give help wherever help is needed. In short, choose togetherness and choose wholehearted, closely bound involvement in the congregation's worshiping life of prayer and praise as the central element of that togetherness. For this and nothing less, is the will of God. 
So that's the general application. Specific application. I don't know about you guys, um, but with everything that's been happening in our culture and being apart from all of you for so long, um, I really think we could use a win. What I mean by that is I think we could use something that would uh, remind us that we still belong to one another, that we still love one another, that we can still be patient with and forgive one another, even though we've been apart for so long, even though we have our differences, maybe on what's happening all around us. I think we could use a win. So you notice this morning um, that many of us that are up here are wearing this, this shirt, right? And it says, put on love, which came from Colossians 3.14, put on love, which puts everything together in perfect harmony. Um, this is our new church shirt. And it might seem a little bit silly, might seem a little bit maybe insignificant to you, but I think it's a really easy way for us to have a common sense of purpose again. And so what we are going to do starting today, you're going to be getting information about this by email and social media, um, is we are starting a t-shirt fundraiser, okay? Selling this shirt. And this fundraiser has two primary purposes, okay? The first purpose is to give us a tangible reminder, a visible, visible, tangible reminder that although we have been apart, although we have our differences, as we are coming back together, we will have this visible, tangible reminder that we still belong to one another, that we love one another, and that we have received a love which unites us, even though all the chaos is swirling all around us. That's the first purpose. The second purpose is to help us remember that the love we have received from Christ is not just for us, but it is to go out in tangible demonstrations of love and mercy toward our neighbor and toward our city. And so this, this t-shirt fundraiser is an opportunity for us to, to be the church together and minister together, even though we may be scattered and unable to come together fully right now. And so all of the funds that we are raising uh, from this fundraiser are going to go to the Treehouse Child Advocacy Center. The Treehouse is the only child advocacy center in Montgomery County, and they're actually located just a couple of miles from our church building. Uh, they are the only ones in our county working with um, the police department, with victim services, to provide services for children coming out of homes of abuse and neglect. And if you remember from all of our work that we did with Grace, the, the organization, the Godly Response to Abuse in a Christian Environment that has uh, been working with our church, then you know that CDC, CDC statistics say that at least one in seven children are coming from homes of abuse. And so the work that Treehouse does is vitally important in our county. They provide services like uh, medical examinations for children uh, when they come out of abuse, uh, forensic examinations, legal help, uh, trauma um, trauma-based therapy, which uh, one of our church members, Sarah Abbott, works there as a, as a therapist, uh, and, and so on, and other services for the family. And unfortunately, because of everything that's happened with COVID-19, they had to cancel their biggest fundraiser of the year, which meant they couldn't um, take on more staff to decrease the wait time that kids are waiting to receive the help they need. And actually, because of budget constraints, because of COVID-19, they've had to uh, cut positions and uh, uh, restrict the hours of others. And so this is an opportunity for us. Uh, again, we buy the shirt. We have a visible remember, uh, remembrance of the love and unity we have. We also have an opportunity to donate to the treehouse and serve them and be a blessing to them to help them go about the work that they're accomplishing in this county. And our hope and our prayers, this will be a great blessing to our congregation and a great unifying spirit um, and purpose for us during this time. So you'll be getting more information about this. All, all we ask is that you would watch the video, that you would go to the fundraiser link, that you would consider um, uh, praying for this, praying, praying for our uh, ministry uh, with the treehouse uh, and ministry to them. 
that you would consider buying a shirt. A small portion of this shirt will go to the treehouse. That you would prayerfully consider uh, giving an extra donation. You'll see an option on the website to give an extra donation um, to the treehouse. Uh, our church is handling all donations, and we'll give it uh, to the treehouse once we get them. And then fourth, that you would prayerfully consider sharing this fundraiser with others. Uh, there's great gospel messages and great gospel opportunity for you as you share this fundraiser with others to show the heart that Christians have uh, for those who are in need all around us. And so I uh, hope you would consider those things. And I hope that as we go about this fundraiser together, that we can accomplish some of what Paul is calling us here uh, to us to, to, to us to here in this text, which is a sense of purpose and unity as we labor to welcome and receive one another as Christ has welcomed and received us. So let's pray together. Our Father and God, we, um, we admit that coming to this text of Romans 14 and 15 these last few weeks has been difficult because there are so many sensitive issues uh, in this world that can divide us as Christians. There are so many sensitive issues that um, our flesh and the world and the devil would want to use to divide us and cause us to hate and be angry at one another, but instead you have called us to love and you have given us the love that we need to be united in mind and in purpose and in worship and in praise. And so God, we pray that through our commitment uh, to this local church body, but then also through perhaps this opportunity of this fundraiser, that you would restore our sense of purpose and unity and love that we have for one another, and that that would then be a cause and a motivation for us to, to consider ways that we can walk in love, that we can please one another uh, for one another's good, that we can build one another up as you have called us to as your body. And so, God, we give you thanks and praise for this morning that you held off the rain. Uh, thank you again for this time. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.